Have you ever uh, had that happen, though? Somebody says something about you. You don't care for it. Uh, at the time, you really don't like it, but you realize after a, a moment or two or maybe a day or two, maybe even it takes a week or so, that they were, they were right. They, they were telling the truth. Uh, I hate when that happens, personally, and I, I, I mean that. Maybe I should emphasize it a certain way uh, now. I'm maturing a little bit. I hate when that happens, but I'm learning to appreciate it later. I hate when it happens. I still don't like it, but I'm learning to appreciate it later. When it's right, when it's true, I'm learning, uh, I'm growing up uh, to be able to process these things now in such a way that I can uh, do it in a constructive way. I can take it constructively after a while. Give me a little time. I got to relax, take a few deep breaths, but I can process it in a constructive way so that I can become not just a, a better person, but a better Christian. That's what's most important is that I become a better Christian because that's who I'm supposed to be. I'm not just supposed to be a person. I'm supposed to be a Christian. And so these things happen. Uh, sometimes people say things about you and, uh, or say things to you and, and you don't necessarily appreciate it at the time, but maybe perhaps later if they were right, if they were telling the truth, you can process it in a constructive way like this. This morning, I want to bring you a message called um, Sinning Like Satan. Sinning like Satan. Interesting sermon title, right? That I could have given this a lot of different titles, maybe to encompass uh, more of the concepts that John is going to talk about here in our text this morning. But I do this today for the purpose of, of causing us to remember, uh, maybe when we see the title up here on the screen, uh, when we've got it written at the top of our sermon notes, or perhaps we'll go back and look at this message online later or listen to it again or something, and we'll remember that sinning like like Satan part, and it will, it will cause us to remember the importance of making sure that we are not what John calls of the devil, that we're not practicing sin like Satan, that we're not doing what he has done, John says, since the beginning, right? Here's the thing, in our text today, 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 through 12, John may, depending on how we take this message, depending on how closely we're listening and how honestly we're investigating, uh, looking inwardly at ourselves, our, our own lives, depending on how we, how we uh, process this today, it's very possible that John may share some very uncomfortable things. He may say that you practice lawlessness. He may tell you, reveal to you, that, that you stand opposed to the very purpose for which Jesus Christ came to this earth and died. Uh, he may tell you those things. He may tell you that you are not of God, that you are not a child of God. And if he does that, then he will be telling you that you are of the devil. I don't appreciate that <laughs> in the moment, maybe. But hopefully, if that's the truth, by the end of this message or by tomorrow when you've had time to process it and cool down or tonight or whatever, I don't know what your time frame will be. Everybody processes these things differently. But hopefully, that information will be something you can appreciate. You can recognize the value of it and say, you know what? I'm going to change that. Because that's, that's the good news, okay? Uh, remember, as we're going along, the Apostle John is saying these things, not me. But if these things come across as, as harsh or difficult or, hey, I'm struggling with this because that matches up, but I don't appreciate that very much. I'm a Christian after all. You know, if you're getting all worked up, you're getting excited about that. Remember, John's revealing that to us today, but we can all walk away with good news today because John's also going to show us how it is that we get in good standing with God, how we get 
get on the right track and it's just up to us to do it. In fact, he's going to point out at one point that, that it's obvious what needs to be done. It's obvious what children of God do. It's obvious what children of the devil do. So do the obvious thing. Okay? Again, it's not complicated. It might be difficult, but it's, it's simple. Do the right thing. So before I preach the sermon, before I preach the sermon, uh, let's jump into this, okay? We're going to look at the text here in just a second. We'll start in just a moment. But I want you, before you jump up there and read along too far, I, I want to point out, it's important to know, that the text today is connected. It's a connected thought to what we talked about last week. Last week, you remember, we talked about uh, what we are. We had a discussion about what we are, all right, children of God, right? And we talked about, uh, with excitement and anticipation, what we will be, correct? And then we concluded with saying what it is that we do, right? What we do, because we're children of God, because we're gonna see the Lord in all his glory and we'll be changed to be like him, we, we said we do something. Anybody remember what it is that we do? purify ourselves. Exactly. Verse 3 said, everyone who has this hope in, uh, fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. So take that, keep that in mind, with that fresh in your mind, we purify ourselves. If our hope is fixed on him, we purify ourselves. And we didn't talk a great deal about that because this week we're going to talk a little bit more about that. And also, as John loves to do, look at the flip side of that coin. So we continually, as those who have our hope fixed on Jesus, continually purify ourselves. Now jump to verse four with me. John says, everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. So this is on the heels of talking about how we need to purify ourselves. And he says, and sin is lawlessness. Verse five, you know that he, that is Jesus, appeared in order to take away sins. And in him, there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Verse seven, little children, Make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. Verse 9, no one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Now, after doing at least three sermons in a row that were just three verses. I get that's a lot of information kind of uh, in one, you know, just laying it on you like that, okay? Nine verses. It's a lot of information. That's true. But we're going to break this up, of course, uh, and we're going to break it up into these nice little uh, sections that are going to reveal, like John has been doing, these, these measuring sticks, these spiritual uh, measuring tools for us. We're going to look at these and say, where am I in, in this lesson? Where am I in that sermon point? Where am I based on these verses that John said, right? We can look at these and compare ourselves not to one another, but to the scriptures, to what John has shown us. He said, if this is true, then you are this. If this is not true, then you are that. Okay, so 
what am I, right? These are measuring sticks. These are opportunities to, to kind of take our spiritual temperature. That's what we're going to do. So first of all, in verses four through six, we get valuable information about the seriousness of lawlessness. The seriousness of lawlessness. John mentions there in verse four, we saw it right at the beginning, everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. Now we don't use the term lawlessness very often, right? That's not something that um, we, we talk about very often. You know, we don't say that, you know, teenagers have a tendency, you know, to practice lawlessness, right? We don't, we don't say that, you know. We, we say they're, they're more comfortable living life on the edge, you know. They do, we have different ways of saying things. But lawlessness, in this context, it simply means to live like God has not given us a law to live by. Right? Lawlessness is like, it's the lack of God's law. In this context, we're talking about God's law, right? So it's the lack of God's law in your life. So it could be a number of things. It could look like blatant, uh, intentional sin. That's lawlessness because you are not abiding by the law. But it could also look like simply going about your day-to-day -day life as though God's law didn't exist, right? Uh, some people are, are, are actually ignoring it. They're not, they're not breaking God's law on purpose. They're just ignoring it altogether, but then uh, other people, maybe they're just going about their day-to-day -day life, and I think a lot of Christians are guilty of this. I know I have been, and I, I think, while I am somewhat unique in certain ways that are maybe not the best, um, I don't think I'm unique in this regard. Sometimes we just simply go about our day-to-day -day life, and we're not all that aware of God's law. We're caught up in the hustle and bustle of, of work and the stress of this person who's waiting on me to get back to him about this. We're, we're worried about this thing going on with our family and our friends. And then we, suddenly church kind of hits us. and We're like, oh, man. And then we boom, we go right back into something else. And we're just not very conscious of God's law. We're not very aware of God's law in our day-to-day -day life. But that's interesting because how conscious are we about the laws of our land? I, I know some of you are going to chuckle. And you're going to laugh at this, so go ahead and feel free to get it out of your system. But the majority of us, when we see a speed limit sign, what do we do? Our eyes go real quick, right? We look at our speedometer. That's what it's there for. And then what do we do if we're way over? Yeah, I'm looking at you, Brogan. <laughs> the rest of us, what do we do if we see we're like significantly over? Whoa, right? First of all, it registers a response. We go, uh-oh, right? And then we adjust, correct? We adjust accordingly because we have a fear of breaking the law. We don't want to break the law. We're even concerned about breaking laws that we don't know for sure if they even exist, right? We pay people to do our taxes. Not all of us. Some of us, it's simple enough. We don't have to do that. But, but many people pay someone to do their taxes because they're like, I don't know all those laws. I'm not even confident in my ability to research all those laws. And I don't want to break any of those laws. So we're even concerned when it comes to the laws of our land about breaking laws that we're not even sure whether they exist or not. But then we fly about day to day and we're not even conscious of God's law and possibly breaking laws. We just don't seem nearly as serious about God's law as we are about the, the laws of the land. And we'd never say that sin wasn't serious, but, but in God's sight, actions speak a lot louder than our words. And so we need to be aware of that. In, in verse 5, John wrote, you know that he, that's Jesus, appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. So what we have here are a couple of hard-hitting reasons to reject this lawless living, right? Why would John say this? 
He's saying this because he's just talked about sin and lawlessness, and he's like, you know that the reason Jesus came to this earth was to take away sins, right? And in him there was no sin. So, so two reasons to reject lawless living. First of all, when you practice lawlessness, you are making a habit of doing in your life the very things that Jesus came to eliminate, the very things that he came to fight against, to, to work against. That was his purpose. He came to eliminate those things. And John says, you know this, right? You know that he came for this purpose, that he appeared for this purpose. And then secondly, John tells us that this lawlessness, this practicing of sin, it's not in line with the nature and the example of Jesus. In him, there is no sin. Remember what verse three said? What do we talk about? We're to be continually purifying ourselves just as he is pure. See, he's the example. And if we're doing things that are not in line with his nature and his example, what are we doing? Right? What are we doing? And earlier in this letter, in chapter 2, we talked about it, where we, we were told that we were to walk in the same, actually chapter 1, we were told we were to walk in the same manner as he walked, right? He's, he's the example. We're supposed to do what we see in Jesus, and if in him there is no sin, and we're practicing it, it's our habit in life, we're a little off base. We're a lot off base, right? We're, we're way out there. Lawlessness stands opposed to Christ's purpose and his nature and his example. Well, finally, in verse 6, John said, no one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Now, it's important as you come across this to recognize that John is talking about continual sin. He's not talking about committing a single sin here. And that's just not a, a real easy way for the preacher to sneak out of this and, you know, say like, well, what he says is this, but what he means is that, okay? First of all, we can tell from the context. Uh, multiple times before verse 6 and after verse 6, okay? Before and after, we're going to see multiple times that John speaks of practicing, the one who practices sin, the one who practices lawlessness. We see that phrase used uh, multiple times, uh, both before and after verse 6. So he's been talking about practicing sin here, but we can also dig into the, or the original language, right? We can get into the Greek and see that John wrote both of these action words in verse 6, the, the verbs, the action words, both of them are written in the present tense. So we could rightly say that this verse says, no one who keeps on abiding in him, abiding in Christ. No one who keeps on abiding in Christ keeps on sinning. That's the way John wrote it. Our text in English has translated it a little differently. However, again, our context would show us this, but, but we can dive in and know for sure from the Greek that he is actually saying no one who keeps on abiding in Christ keeps on sinning, okay? So we need to know that. Um, we're clearly talking about practicing sin here. If you keep on abiding in Christ or having uh, the kind of fellowship that is a real relationship with the Lord, you can't keep on practicing sin is what John is saying. And if you look at the, the second part of the verse, no one who sins has seen him or knows him. Those who continually, uh, or those who claim uh, an allegiance to him, those who claim a relationship with him, but are continuing in sin, they don't really know him. They don't really know him, not, not intimately, not relationally, not, not in, in a, a way that has real fellowship. He's more of a concept, He's more of an idea, uh, more of a, a twisting of their, their, their God to their own desires. That, that's what Jesus has become to those who 
claim to follow him, but keep on sinning. They just practice sin, right? He's, he's a concept. He's an idea. He's something that they've twisted to their own desires because continuing in sin is not in line with the nature, not in line with the true knowledge of Jesus Christ, right? Jesus came to abolish those things. Jesus came to eliminate those things, to destroy those things. So church, we've got to take sin seriously. We can't just say we do. We actually have to do it. We got to be people who are very serious about lawlessness, right? We can't afford to be indifferent or apathetic or unaware of God's law, any of those things we said before. We need to be intentional about rejecting uh, the practice of lawlessness in our lives and and be intentional about actively purifying ourselves to be uh, consistent uh, with Christ's nature and his example. We need to do that in an ongoing sort of way. We need to remember, keep in mind, that Jesus came to this earth for the purpose of destroying, eliminating, taking away sin. So why would we live in it? Why would we practice it? We ought to have the kind of of sober-minded integrity that causes us to really see the seriousness of lawlessness. We ought ought to be sober-minded enough to be uh, honest with ourselves and say whether I am taking lawlessness seriously or not. And we should change if we we see a problem. If we see that uh, this doesn't match up. Right? We've been, John's given us great reasons, so let's do it. Now, as we come to verses 7 through 10, John wants to make sure that his readers understand the deception of exception. The deception of exception. Now this, I know it might look a little funny, we'll explain it in a second, but first I want to tell you, this is the problem. This is what has been threatening Christianity since the very beginning. The deception of exception. There are people out there who are constantly trying to put forth these exceptions to the plain truth of God's word, the plain truth of the Bible, trying to create loopholes, trying to uh, put forth these complications, uh, peddle these, these new loopholes, uh, these, um, these hoops to jump through that aren't in the Bible, or even just removing plain Bible teaching like it's, it doesn't even exist because it's inconvenient. Or because it's hard, it's, it's, it's difficult, or it's, it's not popular, and it's hard to get everybody on board with it. So we're just going to do this instead. We'll just remove that. We'll say it means this, and we'll just move forward with our lives. And it's deception, right? Anybody disagree? It's deception, and if we're not careful, we could also fall for the deception of exception. In, in John's day, there's a very specific uh, issue that, that John's probably dealing with when we come to verses 7 through 10. There was a group of people who believed and taught. These were kind of pre-Gnostic ideas for those of you that are... Uh, um, aware of Gnosticism. We won't get deep into that because we don't have time. Uh, according to my timer, I've only got nine minutes and 58 seconds left. I'm probably going to go over today, just going to let you know. Um, but there, was, there were these, these group of people who believed in and taught the complete separation between the spiritual and the physical. And so what that resulted in for many of them, both their own practice and what they taught others, was that nothing that you do in your physical body affected your spiritual condition and so what they did as a result was anything they wanted to do in their physical body and they said it has absolutely zero bearing on their spiritual condition no 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 um no effect whatsoever on their spiritual condition guys you look around at some of the church because because you all are going 
Well, that's a weird thing to believe. Well, you look around some of the church and you wonder if we, some of us still believe that today. I'm just telling the truth. Now this is me talking, not John. I'm going to get in trouble. The, the deception of exception is alive and well, you guys. But John doesn't want this deception to happen. And so he points out the clear truth with no exceptions. Look at verse 7 here. He says, little children, make sure that no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. So quit being deceived is the way John wrote this. So it was like it was happening among them, the way he wrote it. He was saying, quit being deceived. We know these concerns that they were facing specifically that were uh, threatening the, the church spiritually with this separation of the, the physical and the spiritual. But the general idea, all we really need to know and be aware of is this idea of there's nothing particularly complex or mystical about who's righteous and who's not. Right? Who's being righteous, who's practicing righteousness, and who's not. John says, don't be deceived. The one who practices righteousness is righteous. The one who uh, does not is, is not. And so is that so complicated? Is that so hard to understand? It, it really isn't. He's saying you can judge character by actions. People don't like that to be said. But you can, the Bible says, judge character by actions. That's exactly what this verse is saying. Um, practicing righteousness, the, the, the phrase here, the one who practices righteousness, that refers to action, right? That's not talking about a, a state of mind or anything. That's talking about someone who actually is doing good deeds, good works, practicing righteousness. It's referring to action. You need to know that. And then the phrase is righteous, okay, the one who practices righteousness is righteous, that's pointing to a condition, a spiritual condition, a state of being. So the one who does the righteous action is their condition in God's sight, righteous. Super complicated stuff, right? Jesus said in Matthew chapter seven that we can judge a person's character the same way we identify a tree, right? By its fruit, right, yeah. See, everybody knows this. This is not complicated stuff. Now, let's be clear. Some people do some good works, and that person isn't necessarily always a righteous person. But what John is wanting us to understand and see here is that those who are righteous do, as a habit, righteous deeds. They get into the habit. They, they can be said honestly and accurately as they practice righteousness. It is the way they go about life, the way they, they do life, if you want to say it that way. Again, not terribly complicated. Now, what John says in verse 8 is just as simple to understand, and this is that flip side of the coin, if you will. He says, the one who practices sin is of the devil. The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. So, the one who practices righteousness is righteous. The one who practices sin, John says, is of the devil. Now, if you don't say that just right, that sounds a little harsh. Right? You, you, gotta, you gotta really put a, I, I practiced this this week and I didn't, I still couldn't really make it sound very good. When you tell somebody that they're of the devil, there's no real good way to say it, right? It, it sounds a little harsh to say someone is of the devil almost no matter what they do, almost. But all joking aside, this is the fact of the matter. The way God sees it, 
and that's all we care about is the way God sees it, is that your spiritual parent, the one you look like, the one you resemble, the one you take after, if you will, is the devil. He says, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. Here's why I, John says, here's why I say this. Because you look like him. He's been sinning since the beginning, right? That's his way. That's what he's been doing for quite some time now. And the Bible is basically saying, like father, like son. Like father, like daughter, right? You probably remember Jesus telling another group of people that they are of their father, the devil. Remember Jesus saying that to some other people? And guys, this isn't an unreasonable perspective, right? This isn't just shock value here, okay? This is not unreasonable. As John points out in the second half of the verse here, the Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. When you're practicing lawlessness in your life, the very works that the Son of God came in the flesh and died to destroy. And when you're doing all of this, claiming an allegiance to Christ, but practicing this lawlessness, you need to know how deceived you are. And so there's no need to go soft with this. There's no need to, to shock you just for the sake of shocking you, right? He's saying this because this is the way it is. You need to understand, if you think you're a Christian, if you think you're one of God's, if you think you're going to heaven when that day comes, but you're practicing lawlessness, you need to know, no, 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 no. God sees you as of the devil. You're like him. He's been sinning since the beginning, and you're doing what he does. Jesus God says, my own son came for this purpose, to destroy those works. You're practicing the things Jesus came to destroy. So it's not unreasonable to say you're of the devil. You need to know that. Uh, again, this doesn't mean it's the end of, of everything for you and you're hopeless. This means you need to take a step back and go, okay, I need to get serious about changing some things here. Right? This doesn't have to be terrible news. This can be bad news. This then says, I need to take some action here. I need to make some changes in my life. Now, as we come to verse 9, John is explaining from the positive perspective. So far, it's all been kind of from the negative perspective. Not that he's being super negative, but he's saying, you know, if you do this, you'd be working against God. If you do this, you're, you're working against the very purpose that Jesus came, right? Now he's going to give some positive reasons for, that this should motivate us for practicing righteousness and for rejecting lawlessness, okay? As we get to, to verse 9 here, he says, no one who is born of God practices sin because... Okay, and it's not a negative thing, it's a positive thing. Because his seed abides in him. And he cannot sin because he is born of God. Also a, a good thing, a positive thing. So John points out two different things here that motivate the Christian not to continue in or practice sin. Okay, first of all, twice in this verse, you see it at the beginning and you see it at the end, he uses this phrase, born of God. He's referring to the action and the moment, or you, you could call it the overall event of being born again. That moment where faith and repentance come together with obedience to the gospel, where in our baptism, we're forgiven of our sins, we're given the Holy Spirit to live inside us, and we are born again. We are born of God in that moment. We've talked about that earlier in this series, born of water and the Spirit, that's the born again, that's the born of God moment, right? Well, in Romans chapter 6, verse 2, right before, uh, actually as Paul is setting up to launch into those verses about baptism, he says to people who have been baptized in Romans chapter 6 verse 2, he asks the question, how shall we who died to sin? They participated in that event where their sins were forgiven and they were born of God. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? His point, we can't. 
Right? We can't do that. We could never let that happen. Paul would say, may it never be, right? That's how he would say it. In that moment, we died to sin. We made our appeal to God for a clean conscience. He forgave our sin and frankly, continued sin. It just does not compute with that. That decision you made to then continue in sin, it makes no sense. It doesn't align in any way, shape, or form. There's no way to harmonize it, to say that it's okay. If we did, we would be participating in the deception of exception. Because there are no exceptions here. How can, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Now, the second motivation that John points out here is the fact that his seed abides in us. I'll put it back up there. His seed abides in us. Now, what do we suppose his seed is? Well, if we look at the whole picture, if we look at the immediate context in this verse uh, alone, as well as the greater context of this whole letter, some things we've already seen, some things we, we might see later on, and if we consider how the Bible has used this phrase, this terminology elsewhere in the New Testament, we can pretty safely determine that his seed is referring to the Word of God here. Um, I read a lot of stuff as I normally do this past week and, and there are a number of people who are all over the place. I don't think we need to be all over the place. I think we can pretty safely determine that we're talking about the word of God here. Think about this. Already in this letter, John has mentioned the importance of remembering and abiding, continuing in the truth or, or the word that they heard from the beginning, right? We've talked about that, that that's important. Because doing that, it's been connected for us. John has connected the dots. He said, because doing that causes us to continue to abide in him, to continue to dwell in him, to continue to have a relationship, fellowship with God the Son and God the Father. So we've seen the importance of the word of God and a continuing relationship with him and also with the Son. Also, we know that in the parable of the sower, uh, Jesus talks about uh, the, the sower who went and spread seed, and we know there were different results and all that. But when the disciples were like, what does this mean? He explained the parts for us. In the account in, um, in Luke, I believe it is, he, he explains it for us. And he says that the seed that was sown was what? The word of God. Right? The, the seed was the word of God. So we see it being used that way. Jesus told us that. Now we also need to remember, you know, kind of come in here to the immediate context of this verse. In verse 9, we already said this, he mentions twice being born of God. So, so we know that it's probably important, if he mentions it twice, that, that John here is clearly emphasizing the importance of this moment, of being born of God. So he uses seed, in the, the word seed, in the context of being born again, being born of God. Well, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, we see Peter setting up for us. In one verse, he's got being born again. He's got seed, and he's got seed being the word of God. Okay, so look at this. He says, you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, so referring back to the seed, through the living and enduring word of God. That's the seed by which you've been born again. And so we have all three terms, the, the born again part, born of God, we've got seed, and we've got the seed being said as the word of God. And so I think when we put all this together, we can see that it's the, the seed is the word of God here. So I believe that when John says we cannot continue to practice sin because his seed abides in us, he's reminding us of the powerful effect that the word of God has in our life, how it is the tool that we use to reject lawlessness. 
to know how to live in righteousness rather than practicing sin and lawlessness, right? It's the tool, a continuing uh, knowledge and understanding and a growing of that knowledge and understanding of the word of God. That is the tool we use to combat sin, to keep it out of our lives and to not practice it. And then remember, all of this, we've got we've to bring it back home. All of this is in the context of a warning not to be deceived. Don't complicate it. Don't go making justifications for sin in your life. Don't make exceptions for yourself or for anybody else. This is the way it is. And then when we come to verse 10, John sort of summarizes all of this. And he, as he does it, he emphasizes the simplicity uh, of those who prove themselves to be children of God and those who prove themselves to be children of the devil, right? He writes there in verse 10, by this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. It's obvious, John says. John uses the term, it's obvious. Recognizing a child of God, recognizing a child of the devil is obvious. Recognizing whether you are behaving as a child of God or whether you are behaving as a child of the devil. John says, an apostle of Christ says, it's obvious. Don't complicate it. Right? Don't allow the deception of exception to get a foothold in your life. The Bible plainly, it says plainly here that there are obvious actions, things we can see, things that we should or should not be doing, obvious actions that will take place consistently as a habit, as a practice that will prove a person to be of God or of the devil. And we have to ask ourselves, which one do we want to be? Which one do we want to be? It's probably obvious which one we want to be. So now we need to align our desires with those actions. We need to uh, have desires to, to be, if we have a desire to be that, we need to have a desire to do what that kind of person does. That's, the Bible makes it clear. He says it's obvious, so it's obvious what we should do. We should do the right thing. We should do righteousness. We should do good works, good deeds, all right? Now, you might notice at the end of verse 10, John pointed out, a specific characteristic that if someone is lacking, they are not of God. He says, the one who does not love his brother is not of God. You see that? He's talking about anyone who does not do this is not of God. And he includes the one who does not love his brother. And so the remaining two verses, very quickly, the remaining two verses deal with what I'm calling the fraternal force. The fraternal force. John shows us that there is apparently something particularly powerful about the brotherhood. There's a powerful effect uh, of this, this fellowship that we have in, in Christ. Something very important about this fellowship, this brotherhood, this, this fraternity, if you will. Our spiritual condition, righteous or unrighteous, child of God or child of the devil, our spiritual condition hinges upon our love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. John begins verse 11 with the word for. So he's indicating to us, here's the reason why. Okay, you're not a child of God, and here's the reason why. If you don't love your brother, here's the reason why. For, okay, here's the reason why you can't be of God if you don't love your brother. This is the message. For this is the message 
which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Can't be a child of God if you don't love your brother, John says, because you know this foundational truth. This is the word you heard from the beginning. So it's a bedrock principle. This was taught to them at their conversion, at the beginning of their walk with Christ and his followers, which would be their brothers and sisters in Christ. We set that up, talked about that last week. It's a beautiful thing. And that message that you heard from the beginning that you can't walk away from, that you need to remember is this, that we should love one another. I wonder where John got that. Any guesses? Yeah, I think, I think Jesus. I heard a couple of Jesuses out there, right? It's a good Sunday school answer, and it works even up here in the, the adult assembly. <laughs> it's right. It's Jesus, right? Um, John, no doubt, came to teach this and the other apostles to, to John's audience when they taught them because they got it from Jesus. Jesus has mentioned uh, saying it in John chapter 13, but in John 15 verse 12, it's a little shorter, and so we'll put that one up here. He says, this is my commandment, that you love one another. There it is. Man, and it sounds just like a couple of other verses we've heard, just as, and then it's got Jesus there. Jesus says, just as I have loved you. So to what degree am I to love my brother? Just as Jesus loved us. Selflessly, generously, mercifully, sacrificially, right? We could, we could go on and on because Jesus' love was amazing and he calls us to be that way, right? Jesus is our example for brotherly love. But John gives us a different example when we get to verse 12 of our text, right? In verse 12, John explains to us the example of Cain, and it's a very important example of someone who did not love their brother, right? He says, after he says, this is a commandment that we should love one another, he says, not as Cain, not as Cain who was of the evil one. Read this slowly with me before I explain it and see if you can get ahead a little bit and catch where we're going. Not as Cain who was of the evil one. And slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. The order of events matters here. The, the way John lays this out matters. John says he was, Cain was, of the evil one. So according to what we've already seen, according to what John has already said earlier in our text, what does this tell us about Cain's deeds? This tells us Cain was practicing lawlessness, right? If he was of the evil one, according to verse 8 that told us that the one who practices sin is of the devil, of the evil one, this tells us if Cain is of the evil one, that also tells us that his deeds were evil, that he was practicing lawlessness, practicing sin in his life, right? And he slew his brother. The word there that he used means to cut the throat. Um, I think... I don't even know what language it is. I shouldn't say this from the pulpit. Now, there's, there, I forget if it was uh, the, the Latin translation or the, or the Greek, but uh, jugulare, right? Jugular. Now, does that necessarily give us enough evidence to say that's how he slew his brother? Nah, it's the same phrase they used, the same word they used to talk about uh, what they would do to a sacrifice. You know, they would, they would slit the throat like that. He may have just been saying, like an animal, he, he just in cold blood just murdered him. So we can't say that, you know, oh, well, it wasn't the rock that everyone says it was, which is not in the Bible either. Um, we can't say, oh, I know, I happen to know that it was, you know, jugular, nah, we can't go there. But, but it's powerful language. 
He slew his brother. He was of the evil one and slew his brother. Make sure you get those, those events in order. He was of the evil one and slew his brother. He was practicing sin. He was practicing lawlessness and slew his brother. His murder, he didn't murder his brother and that event started a life of sin for Cain. From that moment forward, he was evil. That's not how that works. He was already practicing a lifestyle of lawlessness, a practice of sin in his life. And if we're not quite sure, we can just look at the second half of the verse, right? Because John asks and answers the question, what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. See, when your deeds are evil, when that's the habit you've formed, when you practice lawlessness, it leads to a lack of brotherly love. Cain wasn't just upset about that one time where God rejected his offering and accepted his brothers. That event in Genesis chapter 4 was just the moment where his resentment caused by his own practicing of lawlessness, where it all boiled over, where it overwhelmed him and he couldn't stand it anymore, he couldn't take it anymore. Lawlessness leads to a lack of brotherly love. As you continue to go on without repenting, without turning toward the righteousness that you know good and well that you should, you become hard-hearted, become cold-hearted. You begin to resent others for, for doing what is right, what you know you should be doing. And soon that lack of desire, uh, it comes forth in, a, in a, a lack of desire to care for your brothers and sisters in Christ. You don't want to uh, stimulate them to good deeds. You don't want to encourage them. You don't want to cheer on the family of God anymore because you see them as practicing the righteousness that you don't want to, that you're unwilling to. That you think for a moment, oh, I better do that. And then you just go on about your day-to-day -day life as if God's law didn't apply to you. You don't even think about it. Or you do and you justify it. You participate in the deception of exception. Or you're just practicing lawlessness because you're not recognizing the seriousness of lawlessness like we talked about before. And these can be the results. Some pretty nasty, scary, hard, cold-hearted stuff. But maybe this is the hardest part to swallow. You know whether your brotherly love is actually brotherly love or if it's a show. You're the one who knows that. You know whether you're doing it because you want others to think you are something you're not. You know if you're doing it because you feel like you have to. Like, I can't come into this place and, and just, you know, like, like you just think I need to, I need to come here and be, uh, you know, act like I have brotherly love. You know, every three or four months, it, it, the, the guilt builds up, and so I call somebody and check on them, you know. You know whether your brotherly love is brotherly love or a show. You know whether you actually truly desire to provide for and encourage your church family or not. So that's on you to figure out. That's on you to decide whether you're going to change that if it needs to be changed. But it all starts, it all goes back, starts with a genuine respect for and awareness of God's law, right? You, you can't fake this. You have to love God and his word enough to be molded and shaped by it into something that maybe you aren't right now. And once we begin that journey, we've got to stay the course 
Right? We can't be deceived by all the religious loopholes that are being peddled out there. The one who practices righteousness is righteous. The one who practices lawlessness is lawless, is um, unrighteous, right? The, the children of God and the children of the devil, John says, the Bible says, are obvious. So, respect God's law, practice righteousness as one who is born of God, like a child of God, and love your brother. These are the measuring points that John gives us this week. This is what we have to decide whether we're going to do it or not do it. But is it complicated? Are there any questions? I mean, seriously. Did any of this not make sense? Okay. So what we're going to do is look inside. We're going to take an inventory of what we do on a day-to-day -day basis. What we say we're going to do and then what we actually follow through on. The commitments we make, the commitments we break. We're going to look and see whether we practice Righteousness, whether we would tell God to his face one day, yeah, 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 I definitely practice righteousness. Or whether we would sheepishly kind of, oh boy. Probably by God's standard, I, I don't practice righteousness. Man, if that's where we are, let's fix it now, not when it's too late. Let's go ahead and make the decision now that God's standard is the one that's going to matter in the end. So God's standard needs to matter now. And so I can't be lawless. I need to be aware, conscious of his law. I need to respect it, honor it, be aware of it in my day-to-day -day life. And when I know it and I continue to grow in it, I'm not going to allow myself to be deceived. I'm going to keep it simple. I'm going to say, the Bible says this, so that is what I will do. The Bible says, don't do this, that is what I will not do, right? Don't fall for the, the, the deception of exception. And then that righteousness need, needs to, to lead to and continue in an actual participation in this church, the Lord's church, loving our brothers and sisters in Christ enough to, to invest in their lives, to be involved in their lives, to encourage one another, to, to build each other up, and to mourn with each other when we need to mourn with one another, this isn't just another message. I mean, hopefully none of them are that, but this isn't just another sermon. This is the word of God saying, this is what you need to do. And so we're gonna sing an invitation song this morning. That's what we call it. And it's an invitation for you to do what you know you need to do. For you to pause. Maybe you don't even sing the words. Maybe you listen to the saints sing to you while you think about where you are in all of this. Based on everything we've talked about, everything John has mentioned today, but what do I need to do? Because most of you in this room, if not all of you, are Christians. And so this is a, this is a message for you to decide, what am I going to walk out of here and do? So we're going to stand, we're going to sing this song. It's going to be uh, page number 526. My hope is built on nothing less. Okay, go ahead and stand. And we're going to sing the song. This is going to come and lead us. And this is that moment to pause and to think. This is while it's still fresh. This won't be the only time, I hope, that you think about this message, but this is the first moment to, to really pause and take it all in as we stand, as we sing. My hope is built on nothing less. <laughs>